0: Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian at UConn-Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. Recently, U.S. News & World Report ranked Connecticut fourth best among the 50 states in the quality of our health care. We have great research universities and teaching hospitals and pharma, biotech, and medical engineering companies most states envy. That's what makes this podcast so surprising. This is the story of how the little Litchfield County hill town of Sharon, with a population of 2,700 people, has produced some of our state's leading medical innovators, and it's been doing so for centuries. Join me on a visit to the Sharon Historical Society, where co-curators Susan Shepard and Marge Smith tell us about the breakthroughs in inoculation, immunotherapy, and gender equity in the medical field pioneered by Sharon residents. It's part of their exhibit, Sharon Cures, Centuries of Medicine in One Small Town. It's three stories in one that will surprise, inform, and make you want to learn more about this town of medical marbles on this episode of Grading the Nutmeg. It is a beautiful Sunday morning in January. There is not a, well, maybe there's a flake or two of snow on the ground. I'm in about the most northwest part of Connecticut. I'm in the town of Sharon. And I've come here to the Sharon Historical Society to see a new exhibit that is both surprising and really exciting. The exhibit is called Sharon Cures, Centuries of Medicine in One Small Town. With me today are Susan Shepard, co-curator, volunteer at the Sharon Historical Society, Jennifer Owens, who is the executive director, and Mard Smith, who is the curator and archivist, and... They've worked together to fashion what I think everyone is going to see as a fascinating and surprising exhibit. You know, I expected when I first heard about this that I was coming to see an exhibit about country doctors in the good old days. What I found out and what is amazing is that Sharon actually played a very significant role in medical issues in history that still resonate very much with controversies today. Uh, In particular, immunotherapy, uh, inoculation, and gender equality among physicians. All three of these things have a very strong Sharon focus. Marge, tell us about Sharon.
1: Well, Sharon was one of the five or six towns that were founded in the very last part of Connecticut to be settled. And they are out of the way little towns. But in Sharon, we've had high caliber people in the medical industry almost from the very beginning. And to this day, um, the medical industry in Sharon is the largest employer very easily. Most of the people in the surrounding towns come to Sharon for medical care, the quality of the doctors, a fabulous uh, small hospital, and just excellent care.
0: This exhibit tells the story of three physicians in Sharon whose work really had an impact far beyond Sharon, and in fact, resonates with things that are happening today. One of the first of them was Dr. Simeon Smith, who arrived here in 1756. And before we talk about him, Susan, I want to talk a little bit about a physician who died just before he arrived, Dr. John or Jonathan Lee, who died of smallpox, right?
2: Dr. John Lee was 25 years old when he died of smallpox, He and his new bride came from Norwich to Sharon, and he was going to be the doctor for the community. He contracted smallpox, which there was not much you could do about it then, and he actually dictated his will the day he died.
0: One of the things that I think is most interesting about him is his gravestone, because I think it tells us a lot about just how much this disease was feared in the 18th century.
2: Well, his gravestone is on what would be the very edge of the old Sharon Burying Ground, now known as Hillside Cemetery. And his gravestone says he died with the smallpox.
0: And that's almost a warning for people, right? Because they feared that there would be some contagion that might come from the grave. Exactly, exactly. So how terrible was this disease?
2: Smallpox is highly contagious person to person, and anyone who's familiar with giving smallpox-contaminated blankets to Indians is aware of that sort of early biological warfare. Smallpox was, from about 1720 on, quite a problem in New England, particularly in the colder months, because people were huddled together in their homes, they were going to taverns, and they were not out in the fields where there was a lot of fresh air. Smallpox is contagious via almost every way of contact, particularly... From the pustules, from respiratory secretions. If you're with people with smallpox, you can't really avoid it.
0: The smallpox are actually blisters that show up on... Yes, they're
2: pustules that show up. It can be almost 90% fatal in certain circumstances, and it has been in colonial times. Uh, Usually it's much less, around 40%. It can be very crippling if you do survive it. You can be blind, you can have deformities, you're certainly very scarred. And uh, some people got away with a few scars, but that was rare.
0: So John Lee dies, and then... This Dr. Simeon Smith comes to town shortly thereafter, and he would be a catch for any town, right? He's a physician with significant training.
2: Yes, he trained in Edinburgh, Scotland, at one of the most significant medical schools in the English speaking world at that time. So he was a quote unquote real doctor compared to somebody who just learned as an apprentice to another doctor who might have learned the same way.
0: You would think that someone with that kind of training would would focus their efforts on Hartford or on New Haven or one of the you know one of the larger Connecticut middletown towns at the time. But he came to Sharon. Why is that? He
2: came to Sharon because his older brother, Cotton Mather Smith, and they were related to the famous Cotton Mather, had already come here as the Congregationalist minister. So it was attractive to come to where his big brother was. He came almost immediately after returning from Scotland. And a significant part of his story for Sharon is that he came with a lot of contacts in England and Scotland, both physicians, uh, druggists, and so forth. And he did follow through on that and develop quite an import business.
0: So, in addition to being a physician, he's like a pharmacist and a medical. Absolutely,
2: person. he was also a very successful farm manager and owned a great deal of farmland. He was a land speculator. He was constantly in search of property that had mining potential for iron, which was very big in the yeah. northwest corner. And he was kind of a true Renaissance man. And there was a saying. Which we identified that if anybody wanted anything they went to Simeon Smith and they could probably get
0: it. He was the local fixer in a yeah. lot of ways. Oh yes. Right? And- so so his his great moment, I guess, from the standpoint of Sharon, came in seventeen eighty four when there was a smallpox epidemic here that spread from here into Connecticut, or at least people feared it was going to spread. They
2: feared it was going to spread. It was devastating for Sharon. We have to assume that it spread into the nearby towns, but thanks to Simeon Smith and his colleague, Dr. Joseph Hamilton, who we think was trained by Simeon Smith, they contained it.
0: As I read the story, there was a lot of controversy when he entered into this smallpox cycle.
2: Well, smallpox inoculation, which is different from vaccination because it's done with a live virus, was very controversial and very dangerous because you actually got a mild case of smallpox.
0: Well, and it's interesting because uh, Simeon Smith's either grandfather or great-grandfather, Cotton Mather, was in, a, in yes. a very heated smallpox inoculation debate in Boston yes. in the early 18th century. Yeah, in the 1720s. And so here is his, is it his grandson now who's oh, here, his it's great great-grandson? Grandson. I think
2: great-grandson.
0: Here, and there's an epidemic breaking out. What does he do? What he
2: does is he is the first one to identify the patient zero, who was a woman who'd been off to visit her family and came back and nobody realized she had smallpox because there isn't a long incubation period.
0: Now, he told them they had smallpox. He and they, told
2: them she had smallpox and nobody listened because she had an atypical case. So she passed away, and against his advice, they had a public funeral at the church, and they had an open casket burial, and the family wore clothes that had been in the home with the woman who had smallpox.
0: So this is a perfect situation yeah. for the disease just to be disseminated Absolutely. throughout the community.
2: Perfect storm. And Simeon Smith went to the town leaders, the selectmen, and the justices of the peace with Dr. Hamilton and said, something really bad is coming down the pike quickly. And within a week and a half, 30 to 40 people had come down with smallpox. Largely in this part of Sharon, then it quickly spread toward New York State and South. So he wanted to institute immediate inoculation houses.
0: So what is an inoculation house?
2: An inoculation house is where people who had received the inoculation stayed through the course of the smallpox, about 30 to 35 days, because they were contagious and they were sick, although hopefully only mildly. And Simeon Smith broke with common tradition by asking the selectmen to designate a number of inoculation houses where people could be inoculated and isolated. And he inoculated with his colleague, we think, according to Hamilton's writings, 700 or so people, which is astonishing.
0: But, but people weren't just lining up to get these oh, inoculations. Oh, no, they were they not. They feared this, right? They
2: feared it because they knew that you could get sick and die, uh, just as much as you could if you got... A-
0: and even if you didn't die, you could be horribly disfigured you could be by this disfigured, smaller You case could of- be
2: blinded, you could suffer everything that smallpox brought. Quite a few people realized that you kind of take your chances, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, and they went to get inoculations. The skill of the inoculator was critical because they actually scarified the skin and put the live... Pustule virus. They would actually take some, onto of the, yes.
0: some of the seepage from the pustules. And, and- anybody
2: who saw the great series on um, John and Abigail Adams a few years ago would see how that was done, because they were great advocates of the inoculation. So we know that there had to be great skill, and Simeon Smith had that skill, and he had trained Joseph Hamilton to have equal skill. So it's thought that only two to maybe five people died of the inoculation out of about 700, which is tremendously good.
0: At a moment when it could have been much, much
2: worse. Much, much worse. Had he not done that, Sharon would have gone right over the brink. So do
0: we know how many people died altogether?
2: At least 40. 40, and no doubt there were more. They simply weren't recorded because we do know from... Sharon historians that it became so bad so quickly that record-keeping kind of went by the wayside.
0: Well, this is, this is so interesting when you think about today. I mean, as I was coming over to Sharon, I was listening to the news and... They have right now declared an emergency in the state of Washington because of a measles epidemic that has, they said on the report, been caused by, you know, people Mm. who will not vaccinate their children.
2: The doctors like Hamilton and Smith would be absolutely walking out of their graves if they knew that we had such a capacity to vaccinate as we do now and we're not doing it. Smallpox, of course, we think is gone from the world the last known death, I think, was 1978, and that was from a lab accident. We have to hope it never comes back because it is a horrible disease. However, many other diseases, measles, whooping cough, diphtheria, are all preventable by vaccination. And the scientific evidence is they work.
0: That there is herd immunity if there you is, vaccinate enough but herd
2: people. immunity requires 83 to 93% of the herd to be vaccinated.
0: And apparently in Washington right now, that's a problem but hopefully this is a wake-up call.
2: It's very interesting that smallpox is so highly contagious, or was, and measles is highly contagious. And it appears that people who have not seen a measles outbreak, because we've been vaccinating since before they were born, are not vaccinating their children, and they don't understand how contagious it is. So we have two very contagious, potentially fatal, disfiguring diseases because you can be deaf and blind from measles, Or you can get encephalitis, which is not a good thing when your brain swells. So there are parallels, and vaccinations are controversial. There are anti-vaxxers now, and there were in 1784. There was a raging print battle in the Connecticut Current, now the Hartford Current, over what was going on in Sharon. And Hamilton had to defend Smith and had to defend Sharon against a concerned citizen who was writing editorials in The Current stating how dangerous it was that they were doing these mass inoculations. They brought the epidemic to a halt within about two months, which is amazing.
0: So Smith clearly is on the side of the angels and of science. He's on the side of science. And that is essentially his orientation throughout his life, right? Because he's known for another very important thing, and that's bringing professionalization to the medical community in the northwest part of the state.
2: Uh, Anywhere in America, because there was a problem of charlatans. There was a problem of serious lack of medical education in any form. And there were people who set up out of ignorance, but thought they were helping people and they weren't. So in 1767, he and some like-minded colleagues met in Litchfield and formed the Litchfield Medical Corporation, not a business in those days, corporation, meant a society. And they published their mission statement in February of 1767 in The Current, and we do have the entire statement as part of the exhibit. And it's astonishing because they wanted recognition that the health of people was very important. They wanted recognition of ethical practice of medicine. They wanted recognition of groups of surgeons and doctors approving other candidate doctors to practice to be allowed to be called doctors. And anybody who's read it now in the medical field says, I can't believe this was 1767, but it was. And in 1779, It was reiterated and reinforced, led by Simeon Smith, in Sharon, at his house, and the medical corporation was still functioning. He wanted to strengthen that movement even further. And on July 5th of all days of 1779, the Sharon Medical Society was formed at his home. And it included doctors from outside of Sharon. And they also were able to call themselves the first medical society in the 13 colonies since independence. And they used that slogan for several years with great pride. It's a
0: pretty good slogan.
2: They met regularly. We don't know for exactly how long.
0: Was there a difference between the medical corporation of Litchfield and the medical no. society? It was just no. a kind of reorganization. It was a
2: reorganization of- and a strengthening. And we were able to find the announcement of the examination of a young candidate in Sharon, where he was accepted as a doctor by a panel of three other doctors.
0: And they worked as a kind of regulatory body on practice. They right? did.
2: To the There was no law regulating physicians, but the power of their word of mouth, the power of word of mouth of their patients was a great reinforcement.
0: So here is this one doctor, and he's not the only doctor in the area. There are other doctors doing important things throughout the community but if you just look at this one man simeon smith and the impact he had not just on sharon but on medical practice in general it's
2: he was really an amazing man Yeah, (laughs)
0: indeed and he later in his life i understand he he lost his fortune funding revolutionary war efforts so he moved to vermont and became the richest man in vermont he did he, he was a man who accomplished everything.
2: He did. He was a true Renaissance man, and he was also the uncle of one of Connecticut's governors, John Cotton Smith. And he greatly supported his beloved Jack's education and well being, and unfortunately died before he could see John Cotton Smith become governor.
0: But, well, and John Cotton Smith became, you know, a really firebrand governor during the War of 1812. Oh, yes. It was, he,
2: <laughs> so it's, it's a fascinating family and a fascinating legacy on many, many
0: levels. That's our 18th century story. And it is, it's a powerful story of how medicine transitioned from the age when there was a lot of ignorance about practice to beginning to get a firm scientific foundation yes. under it. We move from that, just in the interest of time, into the 20th century, where there's another physician in Sharon, Dr. William Bradley Coley, who, who'd have thought he becomes the father of immunotherapy decades before the concept even is named, right? So Marge, tell us about him.
1: Well, Dr. Coley actually was a graduate in the late 1800s from both Harvard and Yale. Um, he set up practice in New York City, and he was a bone surgeon, a very skilled bone surgeon. And one day a young woman came to him with a sore arm, and he operated on her, um, was unable to save the arm But while he was working on it, noticed a small sarcoma. Bessie died. Bessie Dashiel was her name, and she was the girlfriend of...
0: A sarcoma is a kind of cancer. A
1: a type of cancer. And they were already aware of cancer, Mm -hmm. but they feared cancer the way the previous generation had feared smallpox. It was a certain death sentence. And um, John D. Rockefeller Jr. was the boyfriend of young Bessie Dashiel. And after she died, Coley and Rockefeller teamed up. Rockefeller had the money, Coley had the brains and the determination to do something to beat cancer. And he really set himself on the path of finding a way to understand what cancer was and figure out how to treat it. He very quickly hit on the concept that the body's own immune system could be in some way used to eradicate the cancer from the body. In other words, to stimulate the immune system, the body will fight its own way through this invader.
0: You know, this really surprises me because I th- I think if you asked 100 people, 99 of them would say this idea comes out of kind of the advances in genetics and DNA in the late 20th century. And here, you know, 50, 60, 70 years earlier, there's a doctor who's saying, no, this is, a, this is a really good approach.
1: He didn't know what DNA was. He didn't know what genetics were, but he had the instinct. And he created something that was called Coley's Toxins. And it was a syrup of something or other. I don't know what the ingredients were, that he was able to give to his patients. And he had a moderate success rate. There were failures. And at about the same time, the American Cancer Society was formed, and they were focusing entirely on chemotherapy and radiation as the way to get the cancer out of the body. They were just going to blast everything out. They certainly had no means of targeting the chemotherapy or targeting the radiation the way we do now. But they had a lot of political clout. They had a lot of money. They had researchers with them who were more careful record keepers. Dr. Coley was a doctor primarily.
0: He was... So, So what happened when Coley went to them and said, look, I've got a great approach?
1: Well, they were working contemporarily, but not together. Ultimately, they did come together, and one of the doctors who fought Dr. Coley so hard ended up being a pallbearer at his funeral here in Sharon later. But at the time, it was a terrible rivalry, and each one...
0: The, the rivalry was between the radiation chemotherapy people and the immunotherapy
1: Correct, people. correct.
0: And so Coley's on one side, and the money and the power is on the other exactly. side. Exactly. Isn't this interesting that in a different century... The tables are flipped. In the 18th century, Simeon Smith represents science and rationality. In the 20th century, Coley is pitted against the people who are representing science and rationality to advance medicine.
1: Well, the American Cancer Society presented themselves as being the ones with... Rationality in science. Coley was too, but he was—he was a doctor. His records did not come up to snuff as far as the people who were looking for actual proof of this and that. I, the details get abs- so
0: he didn't do clinical trials. He, and he exactly, didn't. he was—he just—he just helped people. He, he helped was, people. Perfect. He kept
1: notes. He kept copious notes, and this becomes por- important in a couple of minutes. So he was not able to succeed in what he did. He had a summer home here in Sharon. And he pretty much retreated up here to Sharon in the very early 1900s. He was good friends with Dr. Jerome Chaffee, who was the founder of the Sharon Hospital. Dr. Chaffee asked Dr. Coley to come join the staff of the baby hospital as a bone surgeon, Together, they performed some of the very first public surgeries so that people could see what doctoring was all about. And he concentrated on that really much more than he was able to concentrate on the immunotherapy. So, this
0: became a kind of refuge for him. This was
1: a refuge and it was a retreat. He became an integral part of the town of Sharon. He was one of the founders of the Sharon Country Club. He yeah, was I understand he
0: had Certificate One in the he Country Club. He had Certificate
1: membership. One in the Country Club. He lived very near the property and he needed to relax. But he continued his work. He was a professional. Physician up until the time he died. He died at the hospital for the ruptured and crippled in New York City, of which he'd been on the staff for a long time. That's now the Hospital for Special Service Surgery, very well known hospital.
0: He was both a very skillful surgeon and this innovator in cancer therapy.
1: Absolutely. And he never gave up on that. And it's a good thing that he didn't. And he saved all of his papers. The other interesting character in his story is his daughter, Helen, Helen Coley-Knotts, who, after Dr. Coley died, realized that all of his hard work on immunotherapy, which she completely believed in, was going to disappear. And she dedicated her life to taking a barn full of his papers, publicizing them, organizing them, pushing hard. She founded the Cancer Research Institute, which is still going strong, and really was his teammate.
0: And she, she, she did the work in a lot of ways of going through his medical practice journals or diaries and converting them into the kind of evidence that cancer researchers would actually look at and say, you know, there's something to this.
1: Right? If she, had she been his partner instead of his infant daughter when he was doing his work? I have no doubt that immunotherapy would probably be a 100 years ahead of where it is now.
0: Was there anything in their correspondence, I don't even know if they had correspondence, she was his daughter, but do you know if they ever discussed <laughs> doing that or was that just something that I th- would be? My
1: understanding is that it was just something that she decided needed to be done. We have connected with his descendants, his grandchildren, there are several of them in the area through this exhibit. Um, we're going to have conversations with them, find out more about him, about her, the role that she played. It's a fascinating story and it so greatly resonates. Uh, During the exhibit, we have a section on the fact that the Nobel Prize last year was awarded to two doctors who were working on something akin to Coley's toxins in immunotherapy. One of the comments made was, why did Coley's toxins disappear? And they say, that's the wrong question. The question is, why were we not using Coley's toxins right off the bat? Doctor Coley was a man way ahead of his time.
0: What was the process through which he he ultimately gained the recognition? I know his daughter through his daughter had validated it, but at what point did people in cancer research start saying? We, you know, Coley was an important figure.
1: When they started doing enough research, as good historians ought to, going back and looking at the past and seeing what has been done so that we're not going to waste time trying to reinvent the wheel, they came across Coley's toxins. They realized it was not quackery, and they looked carefully into what he was doing, and they were able to pick up where he left off, basically. Um, You see commercials today for Keytruda and people hear about Jimmy Carter, who is alive today, I think because of Dr. Coley in a sense, that he was on the track that led to these incredible cancer-fighting immunotherapy, which is done in conjunction with targeted chemotherapy and radiation. They always should have been together had the American Cancer Society not fought him in the very beginning.
0: Had they seen a three-pronged approach instead of a two-pronged approach, we might be much farther down the road to really eliminating this disease.
1: And it's something that, to me, says we have to always be willing medically to think outside the box. We have to always be willing medically to fund research, whether it's because we elect politicians who will fund it or whether we give money ourselves. It's so important to continue to support the people like Dr. Coley who thought, hard about something that he couldn't understand.
0: And we need to make pathways for people like Helen Coley Knott, who had she been at the table with her father, would have presumably have advanced this science much further, much faster than it is today. I completely believe that. I'm Walt Woodward. I want to tell you about a brand new initiative by the Office of the State Historian and Connecticut Humanities. It's called Today in Connecticut History. Every day of the year at todayincthistory.com, we tell you about a fascinating, often little-known event that happened on that very day in the past. Todayincthistory.com provides an article, great images, and audio about the event from our daily WNPR broadcast. You can even subscribe to receive a morning email telling you what big event happened in this state on that date. This is your history and it's worth knowing. And I hope you'll visit today in cthistory.com soon. Today in cthistory.com because big things happen in this state on this date. And that brings us really to our third story and that's about gender equity among physicians. Here, in a way, we come kind of full circle because at last we run into that sort of country doctor that I expected I would find when I came to Sharon, and that's Dr. Josephine Everts, who everyone called Dr. Joe. and in a lot of ways, she is a Country town doctor, but so much more, right? Tell us about her.
1: Dr. Joe was born in Vermont on a farm, and that had great implications for her later practice and later life. But she wanted to be a doctor. She went to Vassar And I believe she graduated from Columbia and got a job at Bellevue and was working in the city at a time she graduated one of 10 women in a class of 100. And there's a little anecdote about her, which is very telling about how her career was going to go. At Bellevue Hospital in the cafeteria and probably elsewhere, the men doctors did not talk to the women doctors and vice versa. And in the cafeteria, if one went to try to do that, all the men doctors would grab their knives and bang them on the glass water pitchers and make quite a ruckus. Well... Dr. Joe walked into the cafeteria and at some point during the meal got up and went over to talk to a men doctor. They picked up their knives and made noise, and she shut the whole place down. She said, this will not be tolerated,
0: and it wasn't. <laughs> and they put their knives down it and apparently so acted and like she, gentlemen. She decided that she had
1: had enough of the city. She and her mentor, Dr. Clark, who had a, a place up in West Cornwall, came up to this area of Connecticut and set up practice. And she was legendary beyond belief.
0: She was so much more than just a physician. She she was a veterinarian. Just talk about the ways that she was a factor in the life of this community.
1: Well, she joined the staff of the hospital in the 1930s. I don't know the exact date. And she became immediately one of the most indispensable people on the hospital. I think she felt that as a woman she had to prove her worth. She wasn't afraid of trying to do that, but she felt that she needed to do it. So yes, she took part in whatever needs the hospital had, the patients had. Veterinarian was an unofficial designation for her. If her clients had, and a lot of them were farmers, had animals that needed help, she could take care of them. She delivered babies. She helped people through the last stages of life. She probably could do surgery. She was Whatever you needed, Doctor Joe could do it.
0: I was just amazed to read all these things that she had done. She was a dentist. She was a guidance counselor. She ran an employment agency, nutrition expert, farmhand, financial advisor, intercession between patients and and uh, other medical figures. And you know, she just she was the go to person. Maybe in in a different way, but as important a way as Simeon Smith had been. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I also understand, Susan, that she helped finance the college education. She did.
2: And we have the actual stories from the people who, for various reasons, nothing to do with their fault, could not afford to go for higher education. And higher education meant anything outside of the local school system. And she would lend them the money to pursue their education and really didn't seem to care if she was ever paid back. There's a great story, which she told herself that she stopped trying to collect from patients who didn't pay because when she went to their homes for payment, she saw that they really couldn't pay. They were in dire straits, and she would end up buying groceries, giving them money for fuel, and so on. And it cost her more to go collect the bill for that reason than she would get on the bill. So she just let it go and went and helped the people.
0: It doesn't work like that today, I don't think. (laughs) One of the stories I love about her is the story of the little girl who was in the hospital with her mother, and she looks up and sees Dr. Joe with a stethoscope around her neck and presumably a lab coat. And the little girl says, you know, Mommy, is that a woman, a doctor? What happened? Well,
1: actually, the little girl's actual question was extremely important. She said, Mommy, is that a lady doctor? And Dr. Joe drew herself up and said to the little girl, I may be a doctor, but whether I'm a lady is questionable. (laughs) <laughs> because she was tough. She broke no nonsense as d- illustrated by her, her story at Bellevue. But she just was tough. She, she knew she was as good, if not better, than most of the men doctors. And to her, she had to hold her own and whatever, whatever that meant doing. She was rough. She was gruff. People feared her in the sense that they knew she wasn't going to let them get away from, with anything but they adored her to a single person. I did something in this exhibit that I've never done before in terms of going to primary sources, and that was to go to Facebook. We posted a question about Dr. Joe on Facebook, and the tributes that came onto our page about this woman doctor are unbelievable. It's
0: just wonderful to read. Mind-boggling. You know, it speaks to a relationship between a doctor and a community that we dream about, but don't experience so much anymore at least i never have and i don't know people who have it's quite wonderful she
1: had an anecdote about herself and the way she tackled things she'd grown up on the farm in vermont and she'd grown up with morgan horses and she basically thought of herself as a morgan horse and if she came up to any obstacle and i'm sure that included her having to prove herself as a woman she said morgan horses when they come to the bottom of a hill they look up to the top of the hill and they go up there they don't stop She said, I'm a Morgan. That's what I do.
0: There you go. And she did go up there and she didn't stop till she got to the top. And to bring the whole story of medicine in Sharon full circle on the 200th anniversary of the Litchfield County Medical Association, who is the president?
1: Dr. Josephine Eberts.
0: There you go. What a story. Yeah. What a story. You know, we've told three stories, any one of those three stories is sufficient reason to come and see this exhibit. And we've really scratched the surface because you have the stories of many other people and many other physicians and the hospital, and it's a story lots of people should come and see. If They should also come and see the town of Sharon, and they should come see this beautiful building. There's art, there's decorative arts there, and there are really nice people here. So how long is the exhibit <laughs> up?
1: Until the end of April, or longer if we choose to keep it up, but don't assume that we can do that. We've got other good exhibits coming down the pipe, so come by the end of April and uh, check our Facebook page and website, because we have lots of upcoming events in conjunction, including a tour of all those smallpox stones in Hillside Cemetery.
0: Marge, Susan, and Jennifer over on the side, thank you so much. This is just a wonderful exhibit in a wonderful place, and... Uh, If anybody is looking for the perfect drive out to one of the most beautiful parts of Connecticut, you make plans to get in your car, drive to Sharon, and come see this exhibit at the Sharon Historical Society. It's going to be up till April 28th, and if enough of us come, it'll be up longer. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Susan Shepard, Mard Smith, and Sharon Historical Society Executive Director Jennifer Owens. Sharon Cures, Centuries of Medicine in One Small Town is on exhibit in Sharon through April 28th. You can view images from the exhibit at the Connecticut State Historians Facebook page. For more great Connecticut history stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored magazine at ctexplored.org. And listen to more great podcasts by subscribing to Grading the Nutmeg on your favorite podcast app or at gradingthenutmeg.libsyn.com. This is state historian Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg. Thanks for listening.